0: Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll finish this morning Paul's two-chapter series on confronting and encouraging, motivating the Corinthian church to be generous in their ministry. Uh, Specific context, you remember, is the Judean believers are uh, in deprivation, they're without, they're poverty-stricken as a result of persecution. And so a year prior, Paul had told them, you should be taking up this offering, uh, receive it every week, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to take those monies and I'll carry them to Judea. The Corinthians started well, uh, and then for a variety of reasons, stopped. We're not giving any longer. Uh, Lots of conflict between them and Paul, and so Paul pays a visit, that goes really bad. He sends a letter through Titus to confront them on a number of issues, and they repent Uh, And so now on the heels of that repentance, Paul is hopeful that their hearts will once again be reengaged with this offering that they need to be collecting and giving. And so for two chapters, we've been working through this, and and largely Paul has been addressing them as a church. But we all know um, that we're more than just a church, right? We're more than just the sum of our parts, uh, but we're nothing less than our parts either. And what I mean by that is a church is made up of individuals, And so it's not just a call to the church in general. As a church, you should do X. But that is a burden on us as people, as individuals. And and so here at the very end, Paul has waited till now to address them really as the individual believer. And so the whole setup for this sermon, really, in this passage, is what about you? Not just what does your church do, but what about you? What is your involvement, and how are you to function here? And interestingly... Paul seeks to motivate them at this last part through blessings. Now, I say interestingly because do you ever get uncomfortable or would you do you seem to be uncomfortable with the concept that as a believer, in part, you should be motivated for ministry for the treasures you'll receive in heaven. For the fact that if you're faithful in little here, he will give you much to be faithful for there. Should Do you ever get uncomfortable with the fact of feeling like I being motivated by the fact that there will be gold, silver, and precious jewels as a result of the ministry God has done through you? Or do you tend to be the kind of believer that thinks almost all of your motivation universally should be, well, Jesus is enough, and and I have consequences if I don't do what's right? And the reality is the Bible doesn't hold it out as one or the other. The fact of the matter is, if we're as believers, Jesus is enough. But he also says, I'm going to give you crowns and riches And you will have varying degrees of responsibility and authority even in the new kingdom. And it's directly related to the way you have functioned and used ministry here. It's not one or the other. It's yes and. And so here at the end, Paul is motivating through blessings. And so I want to read the text with you and and then let us dig in this morning. and, And I believe we'll see three blessings of doing generous ministry. It's the longest section here, our longest pericope. So 2 Corinthians 9. I'm going to read in verse 6 and read down through the end of the chapter. Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I was reminded, again, that we live in a culture that tends to differentiate between people that are Christian. They will say things like, so-and-so is saved, so-and-so is really saved. And yet the Bible doesn't really hold that to be the case. Either you're a believer or you're not. And when you look at the Bible, it's inescapable when someone gets saved. It's not a mystery any longer because, frankly, when the Holy Spirit impacts you, it's noticeable. We have all kinds of stories in the gospel accounts, in particular, that bear that reality out. When the gospel arrives in the people of the New Testament, it's an inescapable reality. Just think about the disciples; they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. Or Matthew, he leaves his career as a tax collector and follows Jesus. Judas. While our, walks away uh, from his occupation. The zealot walks away from his occupation. They all go to follow Jesus. Um, Judas, not saved. I missed the name there, the zealot. The fact of the matter is it's not just apostles. We see Zacchaeus, he gets saved. He says, I give half of my money to the poor, and I repack that which I've stolen four times over. The woman at the well in John chapter 4, she goes back into the town that's rejected her, to proclaim the gospel, the prostitute who gets saved and she comes to Jesus' side while he's sitting at Simon the Pharisee's house and she comes and she anoints his feet and begins to wipe them with her hair. It's almost like you start to see this theme in the New Testament, if I get saved, what can I do to show gratitude? How can I show gratitude to Christ? How can I do ministry to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has rescued me? What does it mean when a person is so overwhelmed by the grace of Christ that they can't help but search for a way to demonstrate that gratitude and affection? It's reminiscent of Paul in Romans when he says it this way in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The ESV uses the word spiritual there. The King James actually gets closer to the truth when it says their bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service. In other words, it's not too much to give our very lives in following Christ as a daily sacrifice. As Paul brings these chapters to a close about generous ministry, he wants to motivate them one last time individually through three blessings that you and I would receive from doing ministry this way in a sacrificial intentional way and really what he wants them to understand is generous ministry will bring a deeper relationship with god he'll make this statement that god loves a cheerful giver that invites divine righteousness the harvest the fruit that we will enjoy is righteousness of christ in us coming out of us and then thirdly it will develop grateful worship the question as we come to the end of these two chapters uh, as lots of truth and ground has been covered is how do you do ministry do you do ministry in a generous way is your life marked by sacrificial intentional planned generous ministry do you consider how you give your money but also your minutes your go through your trials and also use your talents it is no good for us to be hearers of the word and not doers only. And so to get there, though, we want to, first of all, dig in the dirt of our hearts a little bit. Paul uses this agricultural, this farming metaphor or analogy. It's, it's not the only time this kind of illustration is used. In fact, the Bible is packed with illustrations born from agriculture. Yes, in large part because it's an agrarian culture. They are used to farming. But not everybody was a farmer. I'm convinced that we see so much of it because we're all gardeners. We were put... Humanity was originally put into the Garden of Eden, and he's told to work and to keep it. We're told to then multiply and subdue it. We are all caretakers of the planet around us. We do work in the gardens of our hearts just as much as we till in the soil of the land. And so these illustrations from agriculture tend to transcend all of our lives. Paul loves them. He uses it at least in two other instances. In 1 Corinthians, he uses the imagery of a field. In Galatians, he specifically uses languages of sowing and reaping. Jesus does it in the parable of the four soils, the treasure hidden in the field. And so it's over and over again. The question we always have to ask is, what is the point? What is the specific point being made here With this illustration, well, it's nice because Paul tells us, verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so we want to understand it just as we go through the illustration at least to make sure we get what's going on in our hearts. We reap in proportion to our sowing. Now, I don't think that's complex. You could sow a little in this season or you could sow a lot. We all understand if you've got five seeds, the guy drops five seeds in the ground, is going to get less harvest than the guy who drops 100 seeds into the ground. It's that simple. You don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to be growing squash and tomatoes and corn to get that concept, or wheat. You get it. If I sow more, I'm going to get more. If I sow little, I'm going to get very little. The question is, why wouldn't you sow all that you have all the time? And the fact is, what we do is, is you go through a season, and you're looking at the seed pile that you have, and again, whether that's money, whether that's time, whether it's trials, whether that is talents that God has given in your life, and you're asking, what should I do with this? How should I invest this? That's the way all of us should be asking, talking, and thinking all the time. How do I steward this? It's a limited commodity. I don't have. It's not endless supply. So how do I invest it? Well, if you're a farmer, you've got a whole, you've got bags and bags of seeds. Some of your thinking may be, I don't know what this next harvest will be like. I better hold some seed back. I don't know if there'll be blight or insects. I better hold some seed back. I'm trying to plan for the future, and I'm trying to create a little bit of buffer or even Sabbath for myself. And so then if things go bad or things go wrong or I need some extra space, something unexpected happens and takes place, then I've got some room to be able to maneuver. I've got some money set aside. I've got some seed Held back, Paul tells us, I just want you to know, when you sow little, you'll reap little. When you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. If we're really honest and hard about it, and we need to be this confrontational to our own hearts, we will always find time in our calendars for what we want to do. We will always find space in our checkbooks for what we want to buy. We will always find a way that we want to get through a trial. We will always find ways and means to use the talents or the personalities or the spiritual gifts God has given to us for what we prioritize. Now, I think the most people, most Christians, they don't struggle between the decision of priority number 10 and priority number 1. Where it gets really complex is that top three or four. Where do I fit in God, family, work? Marriage, parenting, friendship, accountability, time alone with the Lord, corporate time with the Lord. Where do I fit all these things? With all the things I like to do and want to do, and we just went through Ecclesiastes, and God wants me to enjoy life. All that's fine. And and Paul is telling us, just so you know, You sow little, you're going to reap little. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Now, there isn't a farmer, here's the the unspoken truth. There isn't a farmer on the land that doesn't want a bountiful harvest. So what would it say about a farmer who says, I'm okay with a little harvest? They ain't going to be a farmer very long. And they probably shouldn't be a farmer at all, right? And so I'll just leave this question hanging. What does it say then about a Christian who's very content with a very little harvest? It's a problem. And so Paul says the point is this. We reap in proportion to our sowing. So then the natural question, I think, that arises then is, so then, how much should I sow? Glad you asked. He starts going after that in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so the second point of his illustration is we must prayerfully plan to sow. Some things we need to hear over and over and over and over again. Gardening works so well as an illustration here because it gets so close to our heart of stewardship. The wise investment of trusted resources. Look, if you have been exposed to any kind of financial planning at all, and it doesn't matter if it's Dave Ramsey or, or um, I grew up listening to Larry Briquette all the time and, and this mindset of how do I invest the monies that God has given me, the first thing they're going to tell you, the first thing anyone is going to tell you is take at least a month and track everything you spend. Because if you don't know what, where it's going, you don't know what you should be doing with it. It's the first thing they tell you to do. Now, what's amazing to me is how willing people are to do that with their money, but not willing to do that with their time. And the reality is these are limited resources, and so there must be prayerful consideration. The, there is no percentage here. There isn't. We do not live under Old Testament law where here's the percentage. I, th- I know many of us were raised, you should give 10%. That's why I was taught you should, st- I was taught you should start at 10%. Give generously, but at least give 10%. And I was being taught the discipline of giving. So that 10% happened first. That 10% came off the top. There wasn't a question that first and always I would give to God's ministry. That's that was, that was the way it was taught to me. And I'm thankful for the discipline of that training. Hear me right. I'm so thankful for that. Because there's so much in that mindset that's right. But there is a problem. And the problem is this. The New Testament doesn't give us that number. You don't have this clean-cut number. Instead, what he says to do, you should prayerfully consider what to give. Now, just to lift it out of this, so, because <laughs> there's there's times as a pastor that you're like, your eyes are open. You're like, whoa. I once went and visited a person. They hadn't been in church for a while. I went and visited them, walked in their home, sat down in the living room. The very first thing they said to me was this, I know why you're here. I was like, oh. I knew why I was there. I was there because I was worried about their soul because they hadn't been in church a while. This is the next thing they said, because I haven't been giving regularly. That's not why I was there. I didn't even know they hadn't been giving regularly. I don't know who gives, when you give, or how much you give. And so if if it helps you to think this way, Steve's not talking about giving to this local church. He's talking about having eyes open to the needs around me at large. If it helps you to think, uh, then just apply it directly to helping with orphan care or widow care, or the dispossessed, or the neglected, or Christians in Afghanistan who are going to come under intense persecution, and who are going to desperately need funding from around the world to care for them. If you want to apply, great, I'm not preaching this sermon this morning, because I want our offerings to go up. And so I just got to say that, and, and I previously, if I hadn't been doing this for like 15 years, I'd have thought, well, that's just insecure. But I've had enough occasions and encounters to know, sometimes people are tempted to think that way. And so this isn't about a number. This is about grace, gratitude, love-motivated, prayerful generosity. He says, I want you to pray about it. We know that Jesus isn't thinking a percentage or a specific number when he praises the widow who drops in her two pennies in the temple. As opposed to the wealthy that are dropping tons of money. Zacchaeus had enough to give away half of his money, Repay those he stole from four times over, and still he had enough to live on. Paul doesn't want any compulsion here. And so that is to say, God doesn't want any compulsion here. Not reluctantly. Oh, got to give this. Not under compulsion. If I don't give this, then somebody's going to know. For God loves a cheerful giver. God understands, and he knows the way our hearts work. And he knows that there are certain things we will simply do if it's the rule. We'll go along to get along, but that is not heart engagement. Part of what this text is telling me then in this moment is that if my giving... It's not based, my generosity, and and I just also want to lift it out of money because we're going to see that Paul goes here. He's not just talking about money. He is talking about the generosity of your time and your talents, your goods. He's talking about all of it. He's talking about ministry holistically. If it's not prayerful consideration with a heart to joyfully serve, then I can have no confidence that I'm investing rightly. We must prayerfully plan to sow. Paul was trying to help the Corinthians out with that uh, a year before when he said you should give every week, and so then it'll build up, so then when I come, there'll be more that I can take to the Judeans. He was trying to help them to understand that if you don't plan to be generous in ministry, you won't be generous. If your ministry is based upon somebody always having to ask you to do this, I can guarantee you it's not generous. It's, it's wonderful when someone invites us. It's wonderful when someone gives us the opportunity. And we should be given opportunities to do ministry. But if we need it, we need to own that we're on mission personally to find ways to minister in generosity. That comes through prayer and consideration. Then we see a cheerfulness here, we see a joy going on here. He moves on, though, with the illustration we have to trust God to provide for us. He understands, maybe what some of you are thinking, man, that, that sounds like then that I'm going to be impoverished with my time. I'm not going to have me time. I'm going to be sowing too much. I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to have me money. <laughs> because I'm going to be given too much. I'm not, to have, I'm not going to have the privacy of enjoying my own talents and gifts. And, and, and I'm not going to have the privacy of my own trial. Because you're telling me to sow it. And so he wants to remind you of the way you should think about that. Again, farming. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It's another reminder of stewardship. Notice when he says seed and bread, he's talking about what goes into the ground. He's talking about the ultimate product. Both are from who? From God. And it's again this strong reminder of stewardship. The things that we have Our money, our time, our talents, our trials, they are not ours. They've been entrusted to our care. What are we going to do with them? I think it's very different the way we think about doing ministry when we realize my life is not my own. It's been bought with a price. So what's he want me to do with it? Every part of it. It's not that I have this much seed and God wants some of it. It's that God has entrusted me with this much seed. How much of His his seed does He want me to put here, here, and here? It's not the fruit of your work. It's His kindness and His grace. You might be thinking, yeah, well, I worked really hard. Great. Have you ever met somebody that God has suddenly struck with a disability or an illness where they can't work as hard? Well, I've applied my mind. Great. You ever seen somebody that suffered from a stroke or other physical disability or a traumatic brain injury where their brain is not operating with the clarity that it once did? You think that you have not? been given incredible opportunities, being raised in a westernized, capitalistic society that other people around the world simply don't have? Where did all that come from? The sovereign hand of God. That alone should start to shrink our buffer zone. This isn't mine belongs to somebody else my time is not mine it belongs to god my money is not mine it belongs to god my trial is not mine my talents are not mine they don't belong to me they're gods that alone should start to shrink your buffer zone how much space that you think i need to hold back just in case this past week turned into just a shockingly busy week for our family lots of unexpected opportunities happened uh, we had a plan, here's the, here's the plan, and um, this is what we're going to work, you know, <laughs> you got a plan, you got to work the plan. And, and so that's what we're doing, this is our schedule, and then things just kept happening. And none of them were bad things. They were all good things, but any buffer zone shrank down to nothing. And then by the end of the week, we got to the point that it wasn't just that there wasn't buffer zone, we were now in, in time deficit. And I don't know, but you can't actually create time. And at 47, I've realized I cannot do what I used to be able to do at 27. I know that seems very obvious to do. That's a new revelation for me. Right? So when I'm 27, I'm in grad school. I'm coaching a uh, sports team. I'm writing for the school. Full graduate load. I'm going and traveling on the weekends to preach. And so if I was behind on a paper, I just pulled an all-nighter, wrote the paper, got up the next morning, went to classes. Stevie pulls all nighter now, and it's like I've had the flu for three days. So when I'm in time deficit, folks, we're in trouble. And guess what's coming? Sunday. And so we're just as a family in a spot, stretched out, rubber band right there, right? So ready to just pop. I remember my brothers and I used to get in rubber band wars, and the harder you pull it, the farther you pull it back, the harder that thing stings. And so I was going to punish my older brother, I walked up behind him, and I had one of those broccoli bands. You know what I'm talking about the blue, thick thing you put around broccoli. I had that, and I had that pulled back, and I ran up behind him, and I was going to put that right on the back between his shoulder blades. I was a wonderful younger brother. And you just put that and you pop that thing back, right? You, and so I pulled it back, and it snapped on me. Hit so hard it split my lip. That's what, honestly, we were stretched that thin the end of the week but we're just trusting god god you're just gonna have to give strength you are going to have to give grace you're gonna have to give mercy you're, you're gonna have to put some wind in the sails where there is no wind and honestly it, it was literally the last possible moment that it could occur suddenly our schedule freed up not of anything we'd done god just gave some space and it was breathing space That's just an example from time. I could give you personal illustrations of money that way. That every dime is accounted for, every penny is going somewhere, and then something unexpected happens. And then I've seen God step in. Not just with our money, but with our time, our talents. We need to trust God to provide both the seed and the harvest. That's his point. And in verse 11, then, we sow to reap more to sow. Now, Prosperity Gospel guys love this passage. And this is the way they teach and preach it. You need to give some seed offerings. You're going to invest $100, and then God's going to enrich you you with $1,000. And that's the way they love this text. But that's not at all the point Paul's making, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God doesn't give you more. If you're you're here this morning and you have more, He is not giving you more for your consumption. He's giving you more so that you can sow more. So that you can be generous. Different seasons of life will give you more time. Different opportunities will give you more expression to talents and gifts. Different trials are a gift from God for you to wisely invest them money and material goods are given so that you might sow more he that is faithful in little here will be given much to be faithful over there and then lastly with these illustrations we have to think holistically and i've said that this is not just about money i i don't want that just to be from my opinion i want to prove it to you from the text of Scripture, so you don't just rely on me. Let me give you three reasons why this is not just talking about money. First reason, verse 8, the adjectives. The adjectives in verse 8. Look at it and hear it. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in what good work? In the good work of giving? What work does he say that all this will work toward? Every good work work first reason we know this isn't about money is because he now makes it holistic about all of our life in every area that we are called to steward it's all things second reason is this is sowing but you reap spiritually it is sowing but it's reaped spiritually verse 10 is a direct quote from hosea ten twelve, and so paul writes it this way he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for fruit will supply and multiply your seed And sow and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What happens in Hosea is he says, sow in righteousness and reap love. In Galatians, Paul says, sow to the spirit that you might reap the spirit. Sow the flesh and you'll reap the flesh. This comes on the heels of Galatians chapter 5. You're like, okay, Steve, help me out. I'm not all up on Galatians 5 and 6. Galatians 5, you actually are more familiar with it than you realize. It's the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, self-control, right? Um, and then, it's interesting, he calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Then what does he say in Galatians 6? Sow to the Spirit, and you reap the Spirit. What he's telling us is when we sow the character of Christ and the power of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, self-control, for other kinds, these things, guess what you do? You reap them. When you sow loving others, you reap a harvest of loving others more. That's what happens. When he reaches back to prove his point and he reaches back to Hosea, this is a truth that didn't just show up in Galatians. We now know Paul is being informed by the minor prophet and he's thinking this way, I should sow and sometimes I'll sow time and what I'll get for it is not more time later, but a harvest of righteousness. Other times I'll sow money and then God will generously bless me with more money so that I can sow even more than I could before. But his link here spiritually lifts it out of the concept of it just being about money. Third proof. Third proof are the adjectives that we find in verse eleven. In verse eleven, you will be enriched in what way? Every way. Every way. To be generous in what ways? Every way. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Look, some of you this morning, um, and I, you know, you're you're more like Macedonians. There's just not a lot there, right? Those folks had very little. Um, What they had was meeting just bare needs. And and Paul is stunned when the Macedonians give more money and they're willing to sacrifice. We're not told the amount, but we'll just be honest here. There's no question the Corinthians, when we look at total bottom line money amount, guaranteed they gave more than the Macedonians. The Macedonians just didn't have as much. That would be like asking what church could give more, our church or the church in Guatemala that we went to years ago, or our church, or the church in the middle of Lima that we've done ministry. At. Our, like, I can tell you. But when he makes it holistic, I want you to know, ministry is so much more, generous ministry is so much more than your money. It can be things you own, (laughs) material goods, but it can be your time, your emotional, mental energy, your investment in someone's life, discipleship, your trials, your talents. Generous ministry brings deeper relationship with God, invites divine righteousness, and develops great grateful worship. And so that's the the illustration. Let's look at these blessings though. Let's look at the motivation of now how he wants to pour into our lives because these are hard truths. And and I think what's hardest about them is you could sum all of it down into this sacrifice. It's going to cost you. There's one truth I I wish that someone had hammered into me through Bible college and seminary, and so I'm burdened to hammer Right, and, and so I don't mean that like you're a resistant piece of wood. So drill into your heart, sow into your hearts is this: Ministry will always cost you all ways. You can't plan for the sacrifices of ministry. You can't. You can ask other people that have been there before, and they wisely may be able to say, "Oh, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen." But I'm going to tell you, ministry will cost you. Ministry will never be convenient. And it's important for you to know that because sometimes when ministry starts costing you, you might be tempted to think like the Corinthians, if ministry is hurting or costing me this bad, I must be doing something wrong. No. Paul was doing all things right in ministry. And it was his identity with Jesus that was taking place. And so it's hard. And so Paul, I think, is kind to us by giving us these illustrations the first one we want to talk about though is this blessing of a deeper relationship now it's fascinating what he says here God loves a cheerful giver what does it mean that God loves a cheerful giver I mean does that mean he loves some people more some believers he loves more than others does that mean that God, even this morning, maybe you're under conviction, over the last few weeks you've been under conviction, I'm not a generous ministry person? I'm not generous, generous, take more of it. I'm not that kind of person when it comes to ministry. Does that mean God loves me less? Or I've done ministry and I've kind of regretted it? I wish I hadn't signed up to do that. Yeah. There's no cheer in your heart to do for that. And so what does it really mean? And so let me me give you maybe a a good definition for it. For God to love a cheerful giver is for God to delight with great affection in the person and the moment that reflects his generosity. Now that's complex. I'm going to just unpack that sentence. It is for God to delight with great affection in the person and the moment that reflects his generosity. I say that it's in the person, that it's God delighting in the person because just like the Macedonians last week, some, but not all of them, were moved to be generous by the testimony of the Corinthians. Paul says that the Macedonians hear about this, that the Corinthians are going to give, and the Macedonians, some of them, are prompted to do it. He makes it very individualistic. This is important, that this is the individual and not the church, because the question is not, is Kennerly Rebaptist Baptist a friendly church? The question is, are you a friendly member? The question is not, is Canerley Rebaptist Baptist a generous church, but are you a generous member? Remember, the Kennedy Road is an evangelistic church, but are you an evangelistic believer? It's it's personal this way. God delights with great affection in the person and in the moment. I say in the moment because there are seasons and times that you and I can be very generous, and there are other seasons and times that you and I can be very selfish. We can be given an opportunity and maybe we want to rest on our laurels a little bit and say, well, I was very generous then. Somebody else can be very generous now. It's in the moment. It's, it's not, you should not think of it as now and forever. I was generous once and so I'm good to go. It should be an ongoing action. And so in each moment is an invitation of God's deep affection in the person and in the moment. And then lastly, that it's a reflection of his generosity. We are generous because he has been generous to us, just like we forgive because we've been forgiven. We show mercy because we've obtained mercy. We love because we have been loved. What does it mean that God loves a cheerful giver? It's that God is delighting with great affection in the person and in the moment that reflects his generosity. Do not think of God's love for you then as a commodity that you can just gain more of or gain less of. It is God rejoicing in that moment as you submit to the Spirit and you reflect him. That's what's going on here. Now I wrestled with this for like three days this week, and that that concept kept just going around in my brain. And here's why I wrestled, because here's the question I arrived at pastorally. And and Jesus, I, when I'm prepping a sermon, it's like lots of conversation going on, right? Me and Jesus, alone in the car, driving around, laying in bed at night, thinking through it, praying. And this is this is the question I. I I said, Lord, how do I motivate them to care about that? What illustration can I give to help capture their hearts here? How can I say this so they understand that there should be no greater thrill in your soul than to have God in heaven Look down and see generous ministry moment in God in heaven to say, yes! I love that! Look at this! This is me at work on a display on them! This is amazing! This is wonderful! Jesus, how can I motivate them? And this is honestly what I landed at. If frankly that doesn't motivate you to seek the glory of your heavenly Father, and have a heart thrilled with His delight, then I don't actually know you know Him. I actually think you have a much deeper problem than you realize. Because when the gospel hits you, it hits you like Zacchaeus saying, "I'm gonna give away half I have to the poor, and we'll repay four times." It hits you like the prostitute saying, "I don't care Simon the Pharisee's house, I'm going to anoint the feet of the one who saved me." It looks like somebody saying, "I'm dropping what I have to chase you." It looks like someone saying, "All I have is yours. You have rescued me." And so after three days of struggling, I said, "Lord, <laughs> there's no way I can motivate that." that must be a work that you do in someone's heart. Both negatively, to convict you if you do not live in a prayerfully, considering, cheerful, giving, generous way. Or to encourage you that yes, it's that person specific that even if no one else sees, God sees the cheerful, generous heart of yours and He rejoices in it, He delights in it, and He delights in you with great affection. That should comfort, thrill, and encourage your heart The fact of the matter is there's a great darkness of selfishness that we are actually facing. From the Garden of Eden, the lie has been that living for self is the true path to joy. Uh, Eve, God is trying to keep something back from you. Uh, He's withholding from you. He's afraid of you. He doesn't want you to be like him. You do what I tell you to do, and that's going to be how you're really happy. That's the great lie all from the beginning that self is the way to happiness. We could pick on all kinds of cultural the expressions of that anarchy or socialism. But fascism might be the most obvious political bent that is selfish, right? It's all about me. We don't care who we step on. We actually have to do humanize people. We have to go to Nietzsche, where we are supermen and we are beyond, and so you are less. So much of fascist ideology is built upon that. I'm better than you. And so I have to dehumanize you, make you less than me, and then it gives me the freedom to treat you like a slave or to destroy you, to murder you, or to even commit genocide against you. And so the darkness of it is overwhelming. I think it's helpful for us to imagine what is it what would it have been like to be there in Nazi Germany. We are surrounded from it, by it. Its claim is that God is not on mission for our happiness, so we have to fight for our own joy against His rule and His reign. I want you to know this is at the very core of why you and I are not generous. That I can be happy when I live for me. I'll give as long as it's convenient for me and it makes me feel good. I'll give of myself. Of my time, of my money, of my talents, as long as it's convenient and it makes me feel good. It reminds me of a message I heard years and years ago. guy had top 10 reasons why you should good, give. Reason number one is it makes you feel good. So then, what do you think the limit is of your giving? When it stops feeling good. That is a dark, dark place, isn't it? That it's all about me, it's all about my joy. It's all about my happiness. Holding back, withholding, living for me is the true path. And so what happens? We're being called to be generous. We're being called to give of ourselves. We're being called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Listen, don't, don't make any mistake about this. Jesus is the perfect one who died for everyone else's selfishness. He's the one who leaves the throne of heaven to be born in a manger, leaves the glory and the worship and the safety and the security to come to a planet where he's rejected and scorned for us. Is it so shocking that as his followers we're being called to defy the selfishness of this world? How do we display the light of the glory of God? And so we have pictures like this guy at a Nazi rally surrounded by people saluting and he refuses to salute you know what that is that is light in a dark place that is defiance against selfishness it is defiance against fascism it's defiance against the system that says that it all must work for my good and i'll crush anybody who opposes my good and so we see that and we want to know more of who he is and we are encouraged by him we think of even the three Hebrew boys on the plain of Dura as they're standing there and there's this massive statue and all the instruments play and everybody bows down. And it's a plain. It's flat. Everybody can see. The king is on a raised dais where he can see and there's three dudes standing there in the middle of everything. And he brings them. Why aren't you bowing down? We're not going to bow down to an idol. We will not submit To the God of this world. So he throws them in the furnace. It is a shining light in a very dark world. When you and I are generous in ministry, it's a resistance to the darkness around us. It is resistance to a self driven world. It's resistance to a self aggrandizing world. It's resistant to a self preserving world. It says, no, we are not here to live for ourselves. When we do generous ministry, we're standing in the line of Jesus, we're standing on his shoulders. We are looking forward to the rescue of the king. We are shouting there is a better way. We are saying that selfishness will not win, that the sins of the garden even will not keep happening. Darkness won't win because the light of generous love will prevail. This has been Paul's point all along the way. Generous ministry makes God's kindness visible. You want to see God's kindness? Look at his generous saints who defy selfishness. And instead live for him, trusting him. And then, so then we have God's love for the cheerful giver. God delights with great affection in the people and in the moments that reflect his generosity. Paul is actually quoting here in verse 9. As it is written, he says it this way, it's Psalm 112, 9. Psalm 112, the entire chapter is describing what a righteous person is like. This is who a righteous man is. Specifically, how the righteous man is God's righteousness put on display. It's the true illustration of being an image bearer. Anyone who worships God will be like God. And without question, that is generous. Our God is generous toward us. Think of how God has been generous to you. You are called to image that generosity of the world around you. Maybe you will never experience this kind of great affection, maybe you've never tasted it because you've never been generous. You've never, you've never come to a point and said, it's not mine, it's his. Let me invest it for his glory and not mine. <laughs> it took the three Hebrew boys standing alone on the plain of Dura in order to meet Jesus in the flaming furnace maybe you haven't tasted this kind of deep affection because you've been unwilling to stand against the dark god of selfishness of this world first blessing is deeper relationship with god second blessing though is divine righteousness all of this reflects his righteousness it's sowing and righteous generosity that invites a harvest of righteousness. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that, and so he quotes Hosea 10.12. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's think of it this way. Let's think first of all about God's righteousness. God's righteousness is his steadfast covenantal love to his people. What that means is God has covenanted together with the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to provide for you. Uh, You will be my people and I will be your God. He pictures it like a husband and a wife, a woman that's, that's found in the desert, that she's abandoned and about to die, and this man finds her, and he rescues her, and he feeds her, and he clothes her, and he makes her like a princess, and she is his. He says, this is my relationship with Israel. His righteousness then is the fulfillment, all of the character of the truth and the courage and the steadfastness and the love and the initiation and the pursuit. All of that, his righteousness is the reflection of his covenantal promise to his people. So then what's it mean for you and I to reflect righteousness? What's it mean for you and I to be a right image bearer of this kind of righteousness? Well, in Hosea, let me read you the wider, expanded uh, passage through 13a. You see it on the screen. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You've plowed iniquity. You've reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies. He gives us the contrast of the negative and the positive. But he says there to break up fallow ground. What is fallow ground? Buckle up. This will not be comfortable don't you like warnings some of you drive like I do, though sign says 35 you think i can take it at 45 warnings do very little i want you to know if you drive like i do and that's what you think and you hear these moments in sermons the bible actually says we're fools so here's the warning you know how you get fallow ground you have ground and you water it and you do nothing you water it and you do nothing. 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 You can let ground sit fallow for a year, two years, three years. You can let ground sit fallow for a long, long time. And as you water it and it just falls, water it and falls. And if you actually water it consistently with the same amount every day, you'll have not just a hardened surface, but when you get below the surface of even the topsoil, just a little bit down in it, it becomes compacted and it's like concrete. Fallow ground becomes very useless you know what fallow ground is like fallow ground would be like listening to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon and being a hearer only and not a doer and so he tells them break up your fallow ground you need to till up the dirt of your heart a lack of generous ministry is where you keep receiving but never tilling never planting never giving it produces a spiritual hardness in you that is unfruitful the opposite to this then the opposite is to start realizing that you have been given all you need to live and give that's part of the point that he made where's the seed and the bread come from comes from god god has given you listen now all you need to live and give And I think lots of times we just stop that he's given me all this for me to live on. To till up the ground of our hearts is to realize that I'm going to rest in the strength and trust the strength and power of God and I'm going to move forward in generous ministry of my minutes and my money, my trials and my talents. What this will do, he's telling us, is it will actually produce a harvest of righteousness in you. It takes generous ministry to become more like Christ. Do you ever feel stagnant in your, in your walk? Welcome to Christianity 101. Yes you do. We all do sometime. Maybe you're not stagnant right now. You ever felt stagnant? Yes you have. Welcome to the real world. Then find ways to generously invest. Feeling that even in this moment like you've heard all this before? Great. It doesn't shock me. Many of you have been around Christian life, the church, and the Bible a long, long time. Great. Then focus on one area to apply this truth in and go after it aggressively and sacrificially. And look to see how God will bring out in you a harvest of Christlikeness. There's so much you learn by having to do generous, sacrificial ministry. You learn things like, I can't do this in my own strength. You learn things like I promised that I would do this ministry and now my calendar is killed and I got to give up all these other things just so I can fulfill my commitment. Great. You learn the power of let your yes be yes and your no be no and seeing the sufficient supply of God. I don't know how I'm going to make this thing happen. I don't know how I'm going to meet this deadline, how I'm going to meet this need, how I'm going to pay that thing that I said in my heart. I prayed and that's what I believe the Lord wanted me to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And then you never experience, if you don't do that, you never experience seeing the providing hand of God. It's a harvest of righteousness that he wants to grow in us. And again, it was one of those I wrestled with King Jesus over. And I actually, again, had to come to this point. Look, if you claim Jesus and you're not motivated to be more like Jesus. Paul says this is a blessing. You want to know how you can become more like Jesus? Sow this way and experience the righteousness of Christ in you, coming out of you, that is moral transformation and love of Christ toward others. There's a third blessing that should motivate us and it delivers grateful worship. As worshipers of God, we're on mission for the glory of God. A significant pathway for that apparently is through generous ministry in our lives and in the lives of those that receive that ministry. Now, he says it this way, verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's prompting them to worship. That's what that means. Many thanksgivings. How do you show thanksgiving to God? Guess what you do? You worship. God, you are good and you are great. Look at what you have done. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible Gift. I will key in on two things here. Number one, they are grateful and worship is prompted because of submission to Christ. Look at how they say this. Their approval of this service, verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the, your confession of the gospel of Christ. He's telling us that the, that the Judeans are going to recognize, oh, those people must be really saved <laughs> if they think southern lingo. Because no one is this generous. No one gives of themselves this way unless God has changed them. Everybody else holds back. They don't hold back. That's Jesus put on display. I'll read you one passage that they must be thinking or ringing in their hearts. 1 John 3, 16-18 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, It closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus' love is put on display that he has transformed you when others experience the benefit, the blessing of your generous ministry. Secondarily, he says, their generous contribution, that alone is a blessing to them. It meets their needs. It's the personification of the promise of God to care for his children. God's covenant is made real god's covenant with us seems so hidden he's going to save us he's rescuing us he's going to deliver us to heaven he tells us don't worry about what we eat or what we drink or the clothes on their back and suddenly we end up in a spot where i don't know how to put clothes on my back i do know how to eat or drink and then god works through some other believer and they come into your life and they minister with food or clothing or blessing they meet some need and it's god's being put on display. God's love is being put on display through them and you experience the blessing of their generous ministry. There are so many examples I could give you of just the last eight months of our lives. But just this past weekend, I told you time was crunched. I didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to do it. And I want you to know something. I've been preaching on generous ministry for weeks now and I needed to ask somebody for something on Friday. And I didn't want to do it. I was scared to do it. My fear was not their fault. It's stunning that you could be this passionate and burdened about generous ministry but be afraid to give someone else an opportunity to be generous to you. Isn't it? Like, really, Steve? Yes. I'm just going to own it. And I'm talking to my wife, and we're trying to figure things out, and I don't want to do. And by God's grace, in that moment, my phone literally lights up with a text. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, I better ask them. You think that was a Holy Spirit moment? I think it was a Holy Spirit moment. The person said, absolutely, hey, here's this. And here's the flexibility. And I had a vacuum of need in my life. And God, through this person, stepped in. And I was like immediately teary-eyed. It was like a, a God moment. Isn't God kind to deal with dumb kids? who can preach on generous ministry but are afraid to ask other people to be generous. And so it's like God was saying, I'm not going to rob this person of the blessing out of your fear. I'm going to step into this moment. And he did. It was a God-ordained moment. The generous contribution of others to care for us in moments of neediness puts God on display. There are so many occasions, maybe you've experienced these two of a card, an email, a text, a note, a timely gift, an act of service, a song sent that would lift our hearts, a meal when we're too tired to prepare or to think or to shop. God caring for you emotionally, spiritually, physically, because it was through this person, it's through an individual or a team of people, but it's God shouting to you, I got you. I want you to know, I want to be part of the I got you moments of life because I want God on display. Zacchaeus doesn't give half away and pay back four times for himself because he's going to continue to be a lost man. He does it because God has rescued him. The woman doesn't at the well doesn't tell the town so that she can rescue her own reputation. She does it to put Jesus on display. The disciples don't leave their jobs to be appreciated All these people act in generously sacrificial ways because they've been transformed and they want people to see the power of Jesus in and through them. Will you embrace generous ministry and delight in these three rich blessings? Or will you let the water of the word fall on your heart today and walk away with no plan for putting Jesus on display? No plan for tilling up the soil. No plan for defying the darkness of selfishness. May Jesus be shown And known in our lives as he gives us all we need to live and give generously in his name. Generous ministry will bring deeper relationship with God, invite divine righteousness, and develop grateful worship. Oh, Father, we ask that you would make us generous people. May we defy the darkness of this world with the shining light of the love of Christ. Father, I ask specifically in this moment, that you would give opportunities to every person in this room this week to be generous. Now, Father, as I pray that, I also want to pray that not one person in this room will sit back and say, where's that opportunity? And thereby believe and be convinced in their own flesh that God must not want them to have been generous this week because they didn't see the opportunity. May we also, every person in this room, also be intentionally looking, searching, scratching, for opportunities to be generous with their money and their minutes, with their trials and their talents, so that Christ might be put on display. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.